0: Good morning, church. So today's scripture is from Esther chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and in every province. Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Athak went and told Esther that what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Athak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes, into the king, goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place." Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Thanks, Daniel, for the
1: reading. Yeah, can we just start off with a word of prayer as we look at God's word together today? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, as we just heard, that your word is powerful, that your word speaks to us today, that it's not a dead word from the past, but it's a living word for our lives today, God. And so I pray that as we look at your word right now, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, convicting us of your truth, drawing us in to know you more and love you more, and to have a deeper desire to live lives in line with what you call us to, to live as your people. Yes, speak to us today, God, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think many of you know already, but some of you may not, I love to read. If you didn't know that, now you do. And early part of last year, as COVID was first starting, there was not much to do. So I found myself reading actually more than I normally read, which I normally read a lot. So I was reading a lot, a lot at the early part of last year, and I realized something as I was reading lots of books. I realized that I can read a book and I can figure out whether I like the book or not but I didn't feel like I had the tools to read a book and be able to tell whether it's actually a good book. You know, there are some books that are fun to read, but actually aren't that great of a book. They're just sort of entertaining, but not not quality books. And I wanted to know, how do you tell whether a book is, is really good or just entertaining? And so I decided to go on this little journey of exploration to learn how do you tell whether a book is good or not? And so I turned to more books and I bought some books and borrowed some books from the library and read a bunch of books about how to read books and determine whether or not they're good. I know I'm a little bit of a nerd. That's okay. You can still love me. And I as I read these books, one of the books that I came across is called On Reading Well. It's by a literature professor named Karen Swallow Pryor. And her big argument in this book is that good books teach us how to live the good life. Good books teach us how to live the good life. So some books do this by giving us a good example of someone making good choices and having good outcomes. Some have people make bad choices and then everything falls apart for them. Most books have some combo of good characters and bad characters and characters who sometimes make good choices and sometimes make bad choices. And you can see how each of those choices that people make affects the outcomes that happens to them in life. And it hopefully leads you to make better choices in your own life. And so in her book, each chapter focuses on one virtue and discusses one novel that teaches us to live with that virtue. So according to this literature professor, The Great Gatsby teaches us to live with temperance and A Tale of Two Cities teaches us to live with justice. And The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn teach us to live with courage And she goes on and has several more chapters about different novels that teach us to live with different virtues. Now, you may be wondering why I'm spending so much time at the start of the service today talking about books and reading. Well, it's because this week in our journey through the Bible, we came to the book of Esther. And Esther is first and foremost a story. And just as all great stories, the story of Esther teaches us how to live well. So today, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna recap the story of Esther for us, and then we're gonna look at a few different ways that the story of Esther teaches us to live well. And we'll see that the story of Esther helps us work through big questions of life so that we can live well. So first off, the story. Last week, we looked at the book of Ezra. We saw God's people had been in exile for 70 years in a country called Babylon. Persia took over Babylon and the Persian King Cyrus said, hey, all of you Israelites can go back home to Israel. You can rebuild your temple. And a group went back to, to rebuild the temple. We looked at that last week. The book of Esther happens a little bit after that, which means the Jewish people, they're now allowed to go back to Israel from their exile, but there are still Jewish people scattered all over the Persian empire And Israel itself is still part of the Persian empire. And as we get to the story of Esther, we're we're introduced pretty early on to two of the main characters in the story. There's a man named Mordecai and his adopted daughter, Esther. They live in the capital of the Persian empire, a town called Susa. And the king of Persia at this point is a king named Ahasuerus who is most likely the king that we would better know as Xerxes. And if you're into movies, that's the same guy from the movie 300, okay? Just to give you some context. So the Persian king in 300 is the king from this story, most likely. And he one day gets really mad at his wife and divorces her, sends her away, and not long later decides, I made a bad choice, I need a new queen. So he initiates this nationwide beauty pageant where they take all the beautiful young virgins from around the empire, bring them in, give them a year's worth of beauty treatments in preparation for one night in the king's bedroom. And he's gonna go through all these girls. And after he's been through spending a night with each of these girls, he's gonna pick the one that was his favorite that impressed him the most. And she's gonna be the new queen. Now, if you knew nothing about the Bible, is that the type of story you would expect to find in the Bible? No, it's, it's a little surprising, more like what we would expect from Hollywood, maybe like pretty woman type thing. Take the girl off the street and totally beautify her and then have her fall in love with the powerful, handsome king. But it's, it's what happens in this story. And Esther, this Jewish girl who lived in the capital, who was probably in her late teenage years, She wins the competition. She becomes the next queen of the entire empire of Persia. She's escalated from being more or less nobody to being the king's wife. Now, a few years go by and Mordecai, her adopted father, does some stuff that makes a man named Haman, who at this point is number two in the kingdom, Mordecai makes Haman really, really angry because he refuses to bow down to Haman like he's supposed to. And Haman is one of the most vindictive people ever because he's angry at Mordecai for not bowing to him. He wants justice. He wants to make things right. But it's not enough to just do something to punish Mordecai. No, in order to get full justice against Mordecai for what he has done, Haman decides we need full on complete genocide against Mordecai's entire people group. And so Haman goes to the king, Esther's husband, who at this point doesn't know Esther is Jewish because Mordecai advised her to keep that a secret in the palace. And he tells the king, hey, there's this group of people in your kingdom. They're called the Jews, they're trouble your kingdom would be a better place if they were all dead. Here's 25 million US dollars worth of silver to help you make that happen, to help grease the wheels on getting this going. Let's make it happen. And the king says, hey, if you as my number two guy think my kingdom would be a better place without these people in it, then I trust you, let's do this. They, they write letters, send them all throughout the kingdom saying in the king's name with the king's stamp, on this day, everyone has permission to murder any Jews that you know and loot all of their property. So when you hear the name Haman, just think Hitler, basically, right? Haman is that day's version of Hitler. And the king sends these letters out to the whole country saying on this day, kill the Jews, take what's theirs. Let me ask you, how would you feel if Hong Kong did this to your people group? My guess is for most of us, we'd be like, I'm getting on the next plane out of here. don't care where it's going, just not Hong Kong, right? But imagine you lived in a time where airplanes didn't exist, where basically the entire known world, as far as you were aware of it, was controlled by the same laws as Hong Kong. So no matter where you went, you were stuck. You were trapped. You were under this death sentence. How would you feel? Probably hopeless, distraught, you might cry a lot. You probably want everyone around you to know just how miserable you felt. You may start to wonder, where is God? You know, if he's there, how could he allow this to happen to me? Is he really there? And the response that you would feel in this scenario, that's exactly what the Jewish people feel and how they respond to this announcement from the king, They cry loudly and publicly. They're inconsolable. And this is where our passage today that we just looked at picks up because Mordecai, Esther's stepdad or adopted dad, has gone out into the city streets. He's wearing clothes of mourning and he's making a loud noise, letting everyone know how upset he is. And Esther, the queen, Here's what's going on. She hears that Mordecai is out in the main square of the city, that he's making a scene and a commotion because he is so upset and she is distressed. Now, most likely she hasn't heard about this announcement yet. She's sort of living in a bubble in the palace, but she hears that Mordecai is upset. And so she's concerned about that. She sends him some clothes and says, hey, put these on, get dressed properly. Then you can come into the palace and we can talk. And he says, no way. This is not a time getting dressed up properly. This is a time for mourning because everything in the world has fallen apart. And so she sends one of her servants, someone that she probably trusts very deeply, to talk with Mordecai and learn what's wrong. And he tells her about the king's announcement. He tells her that there's a death sentence hanging over their people. And he tells the servant, tell Esther about this, and then tell Esther to go to the king and beg for our lives. And Esther says, no way, that's not possible. Everyone knows if you go before the king without an invitation, you get killed. I haven't been invited to see the king in over a month. I don't wanna die, so I'm not gonna do it. And when Mordecai hears her reply, he reminds her of a couple things. First, Esther, you're Jewish too. Just because you live in the palace doesn't exempt you from this death sentence. Yes, standing in front of the king could get you killed, but you're already going to be killed if you do nothing. Second, God is faithful. God's going to rescue his people. You can rely on him to do that. He may use you to do it. He may use someone else to do it. But you right now are in the ideal place to be his instrument for saving his people. And if you don't stand up for your people right now, God's gonna save the rest of us, but you're gonna die. And then third, Mordecai tells Esther, God knows what he's doing and this is his plan for you. You know, Esther, you look at the things that have happened in your life. It's not an accident that the king just happened to get mad at his wife and divorce her and send her away. And then out of all the beautiful young women in the kingdom, he picked you, a Jewish girl, to be his new queen. It's not an accident that the exact moment a plan is hatched to wipe out the Jewish people in the entire empire, there is a Jewish queen in the palace. Even though you can't see it, God may have brought you to this position for this exact moment. And if you refuse to act now, you're gonna miss out on the amazing plan that God has for you In this role. So if you were in Esther's shoes, what do you think? Would you do it? Would you go stand before the king? We got one yes. Well, she agrees with Israel. She decides to go stand before the king. She tells all the Jewish people in the capital to take three days to fast, to eat no food, drink no nothing. Pray for her, and then on the third day, she's going to go before the king, even though it's illegal, and she says, You know what? If I perish, I perish. I'm going to lay my life on the line trying to rescue my people. So they fast and pray. She goes before the king, and guess what? He lets her live. And she sets this plan in motion that works out perfectly so that by the end of the story, Esther has revealed Haman's plot to the king. Haman and all of his sons are executed. The Jewish people are rescued and everyone in the entire empire who tries to harm them is also killed. The Jewish people get a new holiday to remember the day that God rescued them. And Mordecai takes Haman's place as number two in the kingdom. Every loose end gets tied up. Everything works out perfectly. So it's a cool story, but what do we do with it? Remember, Karen Swallow Pryor said, good stories teach us how to live the good life. If you want like the Bible to tell you this instead of an English professor, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is written so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. God, including the book of Esther in the Bible, it's included there so that you and I can learn how to live well, how to do the things that God wants us to do in our lives. But how does it help us to do that? How does the story of Esther help us to be complete and equipped for every good work? And there are three questions I want us to look at in relation to this. The first one is, where is God? The second one is, why are you in the kingdom? And the third is, who is with you? So these are the three questions we're going to look at in relation to the story of Esther, specifically chapter four. So first up, where is God? Where is God? Now I've got a little Bible trivia question for you, okay? You ready for Bible trivia game? You can hold up your fingers. I'll tell you it's 10 or less. How many books of the Bible in the entire book never once mention God? It's actually two, but you're right. Esther is one of them. The other is Song of Songs, if you're curious. And did you know that? Did you know the entire book of Esther, God is never mentioned once in the entire book, which might seem weird because it's a Bible book, right? And it's a, it's a book about God working to save his people. But in a, in a strange way, I find this to be a super comforting truth because that's actually much more like real life than many Bible stories, A lot of times God does these amazing things in the Bible and the narrator just tells us that God is doing it. God sends the plagues to Egypt to save Israel. God makes the walls of Jericho fall down. And there's no doubt or question why these things are happening because the Bible tells you God did it. But in Esther, no one's telling you that God's doing things. They just sort of seem to happen. And if you go back and you read the book of Esther again and you reflect on it, you can see God is clearly at work all over the place, but you could totally miss it if you're not paying attention. And think about all the seeming coincidences that happen throughout the book of Esther without anyone pointing out along the way that it's God doing this. Esther, her parents die when she's a child which means that she's sent to live with her uncle in the capital of the kingdom, which brings her closer to the seat of power where the king is, which gives her more of an opportunity to be included in this nationwide beauty pageant once she becomes a late teenager. It just happens to work out that way. The king just happens to divorce his wife and just happens to decide he needs a new wife right at the time when Esther is the perfect age to join this competition. And out of all the beautiful young women in the kingdom, he just happens to pick Esther as his new wife. Haman, when he decides to kill all the Jews, he, he does the equivalent of like rolling dice to pick a lucky date. And it just so happens that the date he picks out is so far in the future that there's plenty of time to completely undo his command before the day arrives. Everything that happens in the book just happens to work out perfectly. And there are really only two ways to read the book of Esther. You can either see it as God fulfilling his sovereign plan to rescue his people or as this series of coincidences that just happen to bring a happy ending to a bad situation for the Jews. The book of Esther doesn't tell us exactly where God is or exactly what he's doing. It leaves us to work through those questions for ourselves. Now I don't know about you, but in my day-to-day life, I don't have a narrator following me around, pointing out all the ways that God's working in my life. Does anyone have that? If so, please like, tell me how to get that for myself because I would love to have that. But in my day-to-day life, I don't have someone just coming along, tapping me on the shoulder every time God does something and being like, look, God did this. God worked that for good. No, real life is much more like the book of Esther than it is like most books of the Bible. God is at work, but unless I'm taking time to stop and see how he's working, I'm gonna miss what he's doing. But the fact that I can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. You find a cool toy? Nice. Yeah, God is always there. He's always working. And I don't know what you're facing in life right now. I don't know, maybe you're going through a difficult season in your marriage. Maybe things have been tight financially right now. Maybe you have a loved one who is sick. Maybe you're struggling with your kids. My kids are wonderful. I love them, but sometimes they're a handful, as you can tell. (laughs) But when we face tough times... It's easy to question where God is and whether God's really with us and whether he really cares. (laughs) But Esther reminds us that God is always with us, that he's always working, that he always cares for his people. And just because we can't see him in the moment doesn't mean he's not there. It doesn't mean he's stopped loving us. It doesn't mean he's abandoned us in the midst of our circumstances. But sometimes we won't be able to see clearly how he's working until after the fact, when we're able to look back on it from the other end. So if you're going through a tough time right now, if you're wondering where God is, don't give up in the midst of your difficulty. Hold on. Keep looking for him. Keep trusting him. The more we learn to see God's work in our day-to-day lives, the more we can live with confidence that God's going to come through for us. I mean, we saw this today when Mordecai sent a message to Esther. Mordecai, he's in complete weeping, crying in the middle of the city in his mourning outfit, and yet he tells Esther, God's going to rescue us. How does he have that perspective? Because he's learned to see God at work in every detail of his life, even though he can't explicitly, clearly see where God is working or what he's doing. So that's the first question Esther helps us think through in order to live well. Where is God? The second question that Esther addresses to help us live through live well is why are you in the kingdom? See, when Esther became queen, it seems that she had no thought that she may be in that position for any purpose bigger than herself. She just sees herself as the winner of a beauty contest who now gets wealth and privilege and access to fancy parties because she's so beautiful. And, and really, like, if you stop and think about it, she did some shady things to become queen, right? For a good Jewish girl, joining a pagan king's harem is highly frowned upon. She would have been probably looked down on by her people for even entering this beauty pageant in the first place. And yet she did it, she, she entered it. But despite Esther's lack of vision for anything beyond herself and her own advancement, the reality is that God, in his sovereignty, had put her in that position for a bigger purpose. Esther saw opportunities for herself, for her own advancement, even if it meant making some morally shady decisions. But God was at work behind the scenes in the entire process to bring about good results and a good ending to the story. And I'm guessing probably a lot of us can relate to Esther here. I think for for many of us, there are probably some exceptions, but for many of us, we probably didn't think about purposes much bigger than ourselves and maybe our immediate families and our comfort when we made the decision to come to Hong Kong. I know I didn't. I mean, I was coming here to work for a church, but my attitude was still really selfish. I came out here for a one year internship thinking, hey, this will give me some good real life work experience. And when I go back to the States at the end of the year, because I'm going back to the States at the end of that year, churches will love that I have international work experience. It'll make it easier for me to get a job and get into graduate programs. And that was, that was what I was thinking when I came out here to Hong Kong. And I know I'm not the only one who came out here with this focus primarily on myself. Many of us came here for job opportunities that were just going to pay us more money. Some of us maybe came here so we could be geographically closer to loved ones in our immediate families. Some of us are here for our kids' education, to get them a better education than they could get other places. Some of us have other reasons, largely focused on ourselves, that we are here in Hong Kong. Maybe you were just born here. Maybe you've never stopped to think about why you're here. Maybe you don't have a bigger perspective on why God would have you be born here, not somewhere else. And again, I realize there are many exceptions to this. There are people who had a bigger perspective in moving to Hong Kong and and intentionally did this as a way to love and serve the people here. But the reality is that in Hong Kong society at large, including much of the church, most people don't think much about the fact that God has us in this place at this time, because he has a plan for us here that's bigger than ourselves. We're too caught up in our plans, in our goals, in our comfort, in our advancement, in our finances, in our families. And the reality is that if we, if we come to it with this self-centered attitude, then when things get hard, we just hit eject. We say, things are difficult, I'm getting out of here, I'm avoiding the trouble, I'm staying away from it. I think that's a huge part of why we've seen so many people leave Hong Kong these past few years because for various reasons, the city no longer fit their individual picture of the good life. So they went somewhere else where they could live in something that that better fit their picture of what the good life should be. But what if, what if God is actually at work in the process of bringing us here? Even when we can't see it, what if God brought us here for a reason? What if God used our selfish motives and behavior to bring us to this place at this time so we could be part of the bigger work that he's doing here? When we see God at work in this bigger way, it changes our perspective for why we're here. I realized this about halfway through my first year here. I had a meeting with my boss that went about as bad as possible. Long story short, halfway through the meeting, he accused me of being part of a conspiracy to get him fired. I really just wanted to like stand up and slam the door in his face and quit my job on the spot. Somehow God gave me self-control not to do that. I walked away, took some time to pray and seek godly advice. And that evening I called up my uncle who's a pastor in the States. And I told him, hey, I think I'm gonna quit my job. Here's what happened. And he told me, Eric, after what just happened to you, No one would be upset with you or think you did anything wrong if you quit your job and left and came back home. But before you do that, you have to ask yourself two questions. And he asked me the first question, and I said, yeah, that does nothing to change my perspective. What's your second question? And he said, my second question is this. Hong Kong right now, it's under one country, two systems. You have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom to do all these things that no one knows what the is gonna be like after the handover in 2047. And you have no way of knowing right now what impact the seeds you're able to plant for the gospel in this place at this time are gonna have in that part of the world 80 years from now. And are you willing to give up that opportunity for the sake of your conflict with this one man? I just thought to myself, I hate you so much right now <laughs> because I can't leave, right? Like I, I, He's right. God has me here for a purpose bigger than myself. By the grace of God, his second question totally reframed my whole perspective on why God had me in Hong Kong in the first place. I wasn't just here to get some cool work experience and and beef up my CV so I could be more attractive to future job opportunities. No, in his sovereignty, God brought me to a place where I have the opportunity to possibly play a role in the spread of his kingdom for generations to come. And without that conversation, I would not be here in Hong Kong today. I promise you, I would not be here today. So how about you? Why has God brought you to the kingdom? Why are you in Hong Kong? Regardless of what it may seem like on the surface, whether it was a chance to get ahead, whether it was a, my parents forced me to live here, whether it's because I tried to get out and I can't, and I'm just stuck here now, or some other reason, there's another reason that you are here. You are here in Hong Kong today because God is in control and he brought you here. And God brought you here because he has a plan for your time here. But like Esther, if we lose sight of that bigger picture and God's bigger plan, we're going to act in ways that are selfish. We're going to fail to be a blessing to the people around us. But that's not the life that God calls us to live here. So I want to encourage you, especially those of you going through hard times right now. It's a hard season, right? Uh, Maybe you're feeling like being in Hong Kong is just making your life even harder. Why are you in the kingdom? And not just in Hong Kong, but also the various circumstances of your life. Why are you in your marriage? Why are you in your job? Why are you in the various situations that you face in your life? And the answer is because your king brought you there. And he brought you there because he has a plan for you to use you to bless others in that circumstance. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Maybe right now you're in a difficult marriage with a spouse who's just stuck in some pattern of sin and refusing to recognize it, refusing to repent, refusing to change. And maybe you just want to run. Maybe you just want to get out of the marriage and find a circumstance in life that will be easier. And maybe Maybe that sin in your spouse is exactly why God brought you to that marriage. Maybe God brought you to the marriage for such a time as this, because in his plan, he knew that you would be the perfect person to put up with your spouse and to pray for your spouse in all of his or her difficulty and stubbornness. Maybe God has you in this marriage so you can walk alongside your spouse through this process of repentance and growth. Maybe God has called you to be his instrument to help your spouse grow. Or maybe God has you going through a company that's going through a hard time and you just want out. You want a better job. You want a more stable job. You want a boss who you can trust. But maybe in the midst of this struggle, your coworkers have a chance to see you respond differently than everyone else to what's going on. Maybe they can see you have a hope and a joy that no one else in the company seems to have. Maybe that will give you opportunities to have conversations with your coworkers about the gospel. Maybe God has you in this job, in this place for the sake of these conversations. Maybe you're planning to leave Hong Kong sometime soon. I don't want you to hear me saying that you're doing something wrong automatically by leaving. Maybe that's what God has for you, but I do wanna encourage you. It's gonna be tempting to bring these selfish attitudes to wherever else you're going. And if you're tempted to do that, stop. Take some time to think and pray about why God is taking you outside of Hong Kong and why He's taking you to this specific place next. Because He has a purpose for you there that's bigger than yourself. When we step back and ask why God has us in the kingdom, it equips us to live with strength and courage and perseverance that we could not have had otherwise. And so that's the second question Esther helps us think through. Why are you in the kingdom? And then the third question, who is with you? You notice at first when Esther tells, when Mordecai tells Esther to go talk to the king, she's scared, she's afraid, she won't do it because she out of all the Jews has the privilege of being married to the king. She thinks that out of all the Jews, she will be able to survive by doing nothing. To go before the king would unnecessarily put her life in danger. And if you look at what happens with Esther, she only gets the courage to go stand before the king when she realizes she's not alone. When she realizes that her status and privilege as the queen isn't gonna save her, that's when she gets the courage to stand up for the sake of her people. And before she goes to stand up for them, she gets the whole nation behind her back, praying for her and fasting for her because she identified with her fellow Jews. She had the courage to stand before the king and do what was right. And the reality is that in our lives, we are never gonna stand for God in the things that he calls us to stand for him in if we believe that we're alone because we're too weak to change things. We're too powerless to change things. We can convince ourselves that things are gonna be different for us than for everyone else. But if you're a Christian, the the reality is that you are never alone. We're united to a wider body of God's people, just like Esther, we have the church. And as Christians, we are united to Jesus, which means as a Christian, anytime we risk ourselves to stand for God and what's right, we have someone who goes with us. And the one who goes with us as we stand for God is actually the true and greater Esther. He's the one that Esther was pointing towards. You see, Esther, she risked losing an earthly palace to go stand before the king, but Jesus left the comfort of heaven to come to earth on our behalf. Esther was willing to stand for her people because she realized that she and they shared the same fate. But Jesus came to rescue us, even though he didn't deserve any of the punishment that was coming our way. Esther risked her life to save her people. She said, if I perish, I perish. But Jesus laid down his life for his people. He said, I lay down my life. God rescued the Jewish people through Esther's willingness to sacrifice herself for them, but he rescued the church through Jesus' actual sacrifice of himself for us. It's only because Jesus is with us that we're equipped and empowered to stand for God in the various situations that face us each day. It's because Jesus is with us, and Jesus has set the pattern of the Christian life, that death leads to resurrection. That's the J-curve we talked about a few weeks ago that we can trust God to keep working in our lives and our circumstances, even when everything goes wrong, because we know that in God's stories, death is never the end of the story. Death always leads to resurrection in God's stories. And it's because God promises that he is sovereignly guiding each step of our lives that we can trust that we're not just here by accident. God has brought us to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it's because we know that he's with us, that we can stand for him when these opportunities arrive. So Esther, it's a great story, but it's not just a great story because it's entertaining and it has a happy ending. It's a great story because it teaches us to live well. It teaches us how to trust and follow God in the trenches of day-to-day life when we can't clearly see him at work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Esther and the way that it teaches us to live well. God, I pray that as we go throughout our weeks this week, we would be reminded of the fact that you are with us even when we can't see you, of the fact that we face each circumstance in life that we face because you have a plan for us and you have brought us there and you are good, and that you've put us in each situation we face for the sake of being a blessing to the people around us. God, I pray that you would help us to remember that you're with us everywhere we go and everything we do, and that that would encourage us and strengthen us to live faithfully to you and to live as a light for you in our day-to-day lives. God, thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.